Welcome to Journey of Faith. I invite you to look at the front of your bulletin and the picture that's there. So how many of you have ever seen these kinds of signs held up at a professional football game or baseball game or, or really just about any professional sporting event? Whether you've been there in person or you've seen it at least on TV, I'm sure. So if you've seen one of these signs, think about this. How did you feel when you saw it? What did you think about it? If you thought about it at all. Have you ever wondered what's the point? What's the person holding that sign hoping to accomplish by doing so? I have. I've thought about that a lot. And if I'm honest, my reaction to these kinds of signs is often less than positive. But the question is why? Why do I find them somewhat off-putting? After all, John 3.16 is one of the first Bible verses I ever learned by memory. And it's about God's love, right? Yet still, for some reason... I find these kinds of signs odd, out of place at sporting events, and more than a little pointless in our increasingly post-Christian culture, where it's likely that many who see them don't even understand the reference <coughs> they're making. Besides, they remind me of some of those unwelcome encounters I used to have in my university days. When some well-meaning Christian would knock on my door or approach me on campus, introduce themselves briefly, and then ask, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Now, I don't know about you, but I always found that a little offensive, coming from a complete stranger. They may have meant well, but it didn't settle well with me. So following a conversation Colin and I had earlier this week, I did a little research and came across an interesting story about the origin of these John 3.16 signs we see in so many sporting events. And according to the story I read, this interesting, if not strange, phenomenon began back in the 1970s with a man named Roland Stewart, whose hope was that by holding up a sign that simply said John 3.16 at baseball games or football games or Olympic events, that people would understand that God loves them. So Stuart would place himself at strategic locations in the crowd. And often while wearing a rainbow wig... <laughs> so that he would attract the attentions of the camera and get on TV, he would hold those signs. And he apparently believed that saying his sign could change people's hearts in an instant. That seeing those signs would somehow bring people to know the God that he knew. Over the years, the phenomenon continued to evolve, and now you'll see John 3.16 not only on signs and stadiums, 
But on the eye, eye black of professional athletes like Tim Tebow, and even on billboards on the side of some of our highly traveled roads. And while the efficacy or effectiveness of these acts in winning people to Jesus is up for debate, I think the, joy, the choice of John 3.16 is fairly obvious. For many Christians, this particular verse represents the heart of the Christian gospel. It is the epitome of who God is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. The great theologian Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, called this verse the gospel in a nutshell. And I think for many Christians it signals God's profound love for us and the depths to which God would go to convey that love. Yet at the same time, the same passage has been used to beat up on those who do not share our belief in God as revealed in Jesus the Christ. And it's been used to condemn those whose understanding of Jesus may be different from our own. And it's especially been used to condemn those who may not believe in Jesus at all. And I think when that happens, it serves not as an evangelistic tool as Roland Stewart intended in hope, but as a wedge that's driven between those who believe in Christ and those who do not, between those Christians and those of other faiths, between those these, between Christians and those who, who may not have any faith at all. And I think it's those actions, along with my own lifelong struggle with the meaning of this verse, that are really at the root of any negative reaction I may have upon seeing those signs be they at sporting events or on billboards or on the eye black of people like Tim Tebow. And while I'm not questioning the motives of people like Roland Stewart or Tim Tebow or any others like them, the reality is that there are countless so-called Christians who have and do use this verse and others like it in ways that are both harmful to the individuals they are engaging, and I think to the cause of Christianity as a whole. For rather than conveying to others the depths of God's love for all God's children, this verse is often used as a means to, means to demean and exclude, to label and divide, to separate us into those who believe the right way and those who don't, into those with those who don't ending up being, in their minds, condemned to an eternity apart from this loving God. 
And honestly, that's something I have a hard time believing Jesus ever intended. As I said earlier, I've struggled with this passage for a long time, for many, many years. Especially as it's used in popular Christianity as a sort of litmus test for who's in and who's out. Even as a teenager, I can remember questioning the idea that Jesus was the only way to God. Even as a young person, it was inconceivable to me that an all-loving, grace-filled God would condemn someone for other faiths when they were searching and trying to be faithful in their own way to God as they understood God. To my young mind, it made no sense that a loving God would condemn people to an eternity in hell just because they weren't born in a Christian family or didn't live in a Christian nation or had not been exposed to a kind of Christianity that was indeed inviting and not off-putting. I believe that there was validity in Buddhism and Judaism and Islam in other major religions of the world. So it didn't make sense that only those who believed a certain way <coughs> were in. That only those who came to God through Jesus could have a relationship with God. It just it didn't make sense to me. It didn't mesh with what I believed about the character of this loving, grace-filled God. In this passage I read, Nicodemus comes to Jesus searching, struggling, trying to understand. He's a faithful Jew, a leader of the people, John tells us. Yet he wants to know more about this Jesus and the things he's been teaching. He senses that there's something different about him and his relationship with God and his understanding of God, and he wants to know more. He wants to understand. He wants what Jesus has. And I think there are a lot of folks out there in our world all around us who, like Nicodemus, are searching for that something more that will give meaning to otherwise meaningless lives. And I think, and you can disagree with me, that's the beauty of journey of faith, we don't all have to think alike, but I believe, I believe, that some people find that more that Nicodemus was searching for in other faiths, other religions. And I think even more are still searching. Maybe they tried Christianity and found it wanting for one reason or another. Maybe it was encounters with hypocritical people, people who were intolerant or judgmental or homophobic or xenophobic. Or maybe they ended up in a church that was not all that warm or welcoming or accepting of people who didn't look, talk, or dress or think just like them. Or maybe they somewhere along the way encountered a lot of bad Christian theologies is out there. And that bad theology turned them away from Christianity. Maybe they encountered 
Christianity in which God was portrayed as this angry old vengeful man with a white beard who would smite you down on a second's notice if you strayed from the narrow path. And they thought, I can't have any, I don't want to be any part of that kind of thing. Or maybe they just haven't tried Christianity at all. We don't know people like that, right? We know people who are seriously searching but haven't yet found a way to God that is authentic for them, that makes sense to them. Does that mean God doesn't love them or that God loves them less? Or that God doesn't want them to spend eternity with God along with the rest of us in perfect human beings? As I thought about this passage now, it's often been misused. These were the people that came to mind. So as I read it, there were two verses in particular that just jumped out to me. One was verse 8. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who was born of the Spirit. And I thought about that verse, and as I was talking with Colin, it strikes me that if God's Spirit blows where it wishes, who am I, a mere mortal, to put a box around that spirit and say, if you don't come to that spirit through Jesus alone, or through my interpretation of Jesus, my Jesus, then, then you miss out altogether. <coughs> God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. Who's to say that that same spirit doesn't blow through Islam or Buddhism? or Sikhism, or Judaism, or any of the other world religions we've come to know. And who am I to limit where God's Spirit may blow and through whom God's Spirit may be experienced? The other verse was the last one, verse 17, the one we often fail to include when we quote John 3.16. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have ever eternal life. And then verse 17 goes on to say this, and this is really important, I think. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And that's where I struggle with this verse. Because it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. And I think that's true for those of us 
who are born in Christian families, Christian nation, who've had positive experiences with Christianity, and have come to know God through Jesus. But I don't necessarily think that excludes people who find God through different means. And again, you don't have to agree with me. This is just my thinking. And that's one of the things I love about this church. But I think if you read that last verse, verse 17, you read it again. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. I think if you read that verse, it puts it in a larger context and indeed elaborates on the motive for God sending us the Son. In particular, lest we be confused that God sends the Son out of love, which is of course where we begin, we hear the clear explanation, the affirmation, indeed the repetition that the Son was not sent to condemn but to save. So it's not about who's in and who's out, but rather about God's consistent intent to love, save, and bless the whole world. David Lose writes, the Greek word for world, cosmos, translated world in this passage, designates throughout the rest of John's gospel an entity that is hostile to God. Which means that we might actually translate these verses for God so loved the God-hating world that he gave his only son and God did not send the son into the world to condemn even this world that despises God but instead so that the world that rejects God might still be saved through him. Changes it a little, doesn't it? But really, God's love, I think, is just that audacious, that scandalous, that unexpected. It's a crazy character of our God, a God whose love is for us all. And I think this more expansive sense of God's saving love is particularly timely poignant in the world in which we live right now, in a world where we see Jewish cemeteries desecrated because they don't believe like Christians believe, or Muslim houses of worship desecrated, vandalized, burned down because those people come to God in a way that's different than we come to God. If God's love is for all, then we who have experienced that love in Christ are called to see persons of other faiths and persons of no faith through that same lens of profound and scandalous surprising love. In this week's passage, we find a bold declaration that God loves us and that God loves 
the whole world. And in that affirmation, we also find a calling to extend that love to everyone we encounter. Not to beat them up with our version of how they should find it, <coughs> but to simply extend God's love to everyone we encounter. There can be and will be, I think, no better way to witness to our faith and to invite others into our fellowship than through loving actions, through extending that love in whatever way you can to those you encounter in your daily lives. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of acceptance. Our God is a God around which whom we can draw no boxes. It's not our place as humans, as mortals, to put boundaries around God's love. It's not our place to say who's worthy and who's not. It's God's job. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus consistently teaches us that God is indeed a God of audacious, scandalous, unimaginable love. And thanks be to God that that is true. Thanks for listening. Please check us out at jofumc.org. God bless.